Hello world. Welcome to another episode of Roots of Change, a weekly podcast all about liberation, anti-oppression work, and how coaching can help us build stronger movements. On this podcast, we start by looking at the ways that we are still invested in the systems that harm us and ask what we can do to change that. I'm your host, Rebecca Markley, and I am a coach, a tenant organizer, a leftist, and I really want to change the world. And if you're like, mm, yeah, I want to change the world too, then you've found a home here. This week, I'm getting a little bit more political and a little bit more agenda forward. Um, we're going to be talking about housing issues and why we won't be able to, uh, you know, solve a lot of these housing issues unless we, you know, make some big, big changes. But... Before we get into the rest of the episode, I want to talk a little bit about a new coaching workshop series that I'm hosting with my friend and fellow coach, Fern Wiley. You all met Fern last week when we were talking about limiting beliefs and how limiting beliefs can come up in liberatory work. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, it's really good and you definitely should. Um, But anyway, Fern and I are going to be hosting a four-week group coaching series called An Orbit Around the Sun. It's going to be held on Tuesday evenings in January. And the theme for Orbit is really like stepping into the new revolution around the sun, the new year, with confidence and clarity. And it's geared for passionate and driven folks who want to change the world and want to accomplish big things in 2022. And throughout the coaching series, we're going to be doing some reflection on 2021. Um, We're going to do some parts work, map out our inner worlds. We're going to look at internal blocks and we're going to do some really um, supportive goal setting. So if you are considering a career change, pivoting something in your business, want to make some other substantial change in your life, or even really just like want a tune up, um, this coaching series is going to be perfect for you. So go to coachingforus.com forward slash orbit to sign up and uh, let's get back to the action. There's a city planner named Phil who plays the game City Skylines on YouTube. I am a big fan of Phil and his channel City Planner Plays and the game City Skylines as well. Um, It's a really, really cool game where you essentially get to build a city from the ground up. You start off with like a few tens of thousands of dollars and you make a road and you build some houses, you zone lots to build houses. And then you kind of start building, um, you you zone more lots for like commercial developments and industry developments. And then from there, you let your city grow. Um, And you build more roads and fire stations. You put schools and hospitals and cemeteries. You have to navigate utilities. like electricity and water and you can make choices about whether you want to choose like eco-friendly 
electricity like windmills and dams, um, but then it also creates some consequences for that as well. And the game gets really, really fucking detailed. Like you can even set specific tax rate tax rates for your office districts that are different from other kinds of commercial districts. Um, you can actually like also set um, like walking tour routes and there are lots of expansions where you can like build a university or a park and you can like literally build an amusement park and like put down rides and shit like that so fucking fun so fucking fun really good game highly recommend it um but back to what we're talking about which is housing stuff um phil plays the this game and he's also like a, a real life city planner and so he kind of makes the it an educational experience he'll talk about zoning issues why highways are harmful to communities and also housing issues um, I have two favorite quotes from Phil. The first one is really like his catchphrase that he says like all the time, multiple times in an episode. And um, whenever he makes a mistake, he'll say, I'm calling a mulligan and then go in with like the bulldoze tool and like completely like destroy a whole section of the city to like fix a tiny thing. Um, and it's it's quite funny because he tries to make the game realistic. And then he's like, actually, I fucked up. So I'm just gonna, you know, use the use this mechanic that the game is built in and, and, and do something very unrealistic. And the second quote of his is a little bit less delightful, and it's much more about material analysis. And he said that came from one of his city planning mentors. Um, I don't know who that is, but the quote is, housing is where the jobs go to sleep at night. Just like let that sink in a little bit. I think that is a really really powerful thing to remember. Housing is not as flashy as creating jobs or cool public spaces for people to use, you know, bonds to build a new library or a new school, right? And and much of housing is wrapped up in dense, opaque zoning code, maps that are hard to read, and municipal websites that are impossible to navigate. Trust me, I know this from doing this work. But housing is essential. And it's kind of, you know, a very popular refrain on the left amongst movement spaces and, and part of a, a, a the vision for a better world, right, is to really recognize that housing is essential, that it is a basic human need. But right now, it's also one of the biggest sources of instability in our society. Depending upon the study and the city, researchers estimate that anywhere between 40 and 60% of renters are rent burdened. This means that a month's rent payment is a significant portion of their paycheck, and that creates huge cascading sets of issues. This means that renters are less likely to be able to save for emergencies. Um, it impacts their health and well-being, that stress. Um, it also puts renters at higher risk for losing their homes due to displacement and evictions. And housing really overlaps with like labor justice, right? Like, you know, the the quote before I think puts that into perspective um, with 
you know, housing is where the jobs go to sleep at night. So if renters are so rent burdened, why can't they have higher paying wages? And also, why can't the rents be cheaper? Housing also overlaps with racial justice issues as well. Um, Historically, like redlining has prevented um, black families, um, brown families, you know, people of color from purchasing homes. Um, And women of color are significantly more likely to be evicted than white women for a myriad of different reasons. Um, And then this all comes down to the the function of eviction as like the leading cause of homelessness. But again, right, housing is a human right. So like what gives? Why is it that an essential human need is inaccessible for so many people? Like easy, like knee jerk reaction that I hear from a lot of people who care about social justice issues, um, who are in movement spaces, is to kind of like really shrug and and not really you know know what to do. They'll say like, "Wow, that is super awful. We need more affordable housing. We need more shelters. We need to connect people to better resources." And if you live in a city in America, I'm sure in other places as well, but probably not nearly as much as America because America is pretty fucked. Um, but you can just like look outside and see the impact of our broken housing system. And I've seen this in the city that I live. I live in Portland, Oregon. Um, homelessness was already really, really, really common and really, really, really bad, um, putting a strain on um the city's resources before the pandemic and it has completely exploded. Like there are like little like Hooverville shanty communities that have built up within the medians of freeways um, on the sides of the road. Um, And it is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, And while, yeah, having affordable housing, homeless shelters um, and, and better mental health resources can alleviate some of the instability and suffering that are happening within our communities, they do not address the root cause of housing issues. So before I get into solutions, let's do a bit of a lore dump about housing theory. I promise it's not as boring as it sounds. Um, so like the the too long didn't read version of housing issues is that housing has become hyper commodified. What does like commodified mean, though? That means that the use value of a home, the value of a house as it fulfills our human need for shelter is eclipsed by its exchange value, the value that comes from the house when you try to exchange it for money. Because of the housing market, essentially, we don't really care about the use value of a home. We've all got like little dollar signs over our eyeballs um, and we've been conditioned to see a house as an investment, as an investment, not as a place for safety or shelter. 
And it's like the theoretical difference between being a renter and being a homeowner. My mom's always like harping on me. She's like, Rebecca, you need to not be a renter. You need to be a homeowner, right? And speaking very generally here, when you are a renter, you are just paying for the use value of a particular home or a unit. You know, there's also usually like other market factors baked into it. There's that like landlord profit cut baked into it as well. But when you are a homeowner or a landlord, you can expect your property to appreciate in value over time. And commodification is when that property's exchange value, how much you could get for it when you sell it, dominates a property's use value, the use of it as just a home. And the commodification of housing has been getting more extreme since the 1970s, when the U.S. began dismantling its public housing system through deregulation and outright limiting of public housing development, um, you know, all for the name of privatization and like neoliberal economics. So instead of providing housing at its use value, which it did, public housing was a thing in the United States, it began subsidizing that public housing so that it could participate in a market, augmenting the exchange value of a home that, so that it can provide a profit for the, owning, the owner class. And when I talk about the commodification of housing, sometimes people ask me, like, how does this relate to the housing market crash? And it is like, adjacently related. Um, and let me try to explain that. Um, the housing market crash was really like a creation of the housing market out of the commodification. And it was it was born because of like subprime mortgages. And and those trends actually were set in place by that deregulation that has been happening since the 1970s. Um, and also the rise of the narrative, that propaganda piece, that real estate is like the best investment you can ever make. Um, but they, they are separate things, but they are definitely connected. Um, but anyway, uh, over time, as these trends have accelerated, housing become has become hyper-commodified. And so this means that housing only exists as a tool for wealth accumulation and investment. And it's not just that housing itself is commodified, but also the apparatus that supports the housing market is commodified. So when housing is hyper-commodified, the fact that it can provide shelter to somebody is completely irrelevant. And we can see this when landlords will opt to leave a unit empty so that they and then they can just like take that loss of income as a tax write off rather than trying to get that unit filled immediately after a, after somebody moves out or after it's been vacated. Um, when investors will buy up condos that they don't ever plan on living in because of that appreciation of value. Um, you know, those foreign investors that you hear about, you know, on the news. And it's also seen when like banks become landlords, right? Like why the fuck would a bank become a landlord? Because it's a part of that financialization of the market. And so all of these pieces combine into a situation where housing becomes increasingly unstable, right? It ceases to function 
as a place where you go to rest, you cook your meals, the place where you have sex with your partner, you play video games and cuddle with your pets, and it literally is just a commodity to be sold to the highest bidder. So are you, are you following me? Um, I know it can be a little dense, but it's really important to understand this background perspective because this is really why we aren't actually going to be able to make housing a human right. Because like on the big scale, we have banks and insurance companies that own huge and, you know, vaguely empty condo buildings when, you know, there, there's homelessness around us, right? There are options to buy into people's mortgages as as investments in the mortgage market. Developers are able to gentrify neighborhoods and, and push out longtime homeowners and renters to be able to increase, you know, their own profits. And like on the small scale, we also can see this at the wild things that you read on Nextdoor. You know, people getting angry because a homeless neighbor is camping nearby or mom and pop, quote unquote, mom and pop landlords increasing rent unnecessarily, Um, not just because property values are increasing or insurance is increasing, but because the market rate is increasing as well. And it's the new homeowners also who deal with this, who worry about the quality of their neighborhood because they don't want to lose money on the biggest financial decision of their lives. So yeah, housing is completely wrapped up in the capitalist machine. And we can repeat to ourselves all day long that housing is a human right and try to advocate for housing issues all we want, but that won't change unless we actually start disassembling our current housing system. So, what are some solutions? We'll take a a look at those right after this break. Okay, with that out of the way, let's talk about how we can uh, fix housing, right? So um, the, the, the simplest answer is to abolish the housing market. And like that is a huge goal that is, you know, on par with the, the revolution, right? Um, that's not happening anytime soon. So right now it might feel like a really, really, really radical idea. And I can, uh, I can like anticipate and feel all of the the concerns, the uh, what about this, the the questions that people have when I say something like, yeah, abolish the housing market, right? Because abolish the housing market, like, oh my fucking God, wouldn't that have like intense consequences? What about all the people who are just like regular ass people whose like stability and security is tied up in real estate? What about all of those peoples and their livelihoods? They're just a part of the system, right? You know, and like the questions can go on and on on and on, right? Um, And those are great questions. Those are questions that we will need to weigh and answer at some point if we are going to abolish the housing market, for sure. One of the biggest themes that I talk about on this podcast is the ways that we are still invested in the systems that harm us. And this situation is no different. And I think it's almost a little bit more literal than than other examples that we've talked about thus far. 
We have all collectively bought into, both metaphorically and literally bought into, a housing market. And housing has become inaccessible and unstable because those conditions benefit us. Homeowners love their property values. We see this in an example um, brought by Johnny Harris, who is a reporter and a video essayist, and he recently did a video collaboration with the New York Times that talks about how a county in Palo Alto, California, voted down a plan to build affordable senior housing. In that plan, it uh, that plan tried to essentially um, take a specific block of the city and rezone it from single family zoning into higher density zoning. And because everybody wants their lawnmower and their picket fence, um, they bought it, they, they shot it down. Um, because single family zoning is one of the most important tools of property value appreciation. And that comes out of uh, single family zoning as a tool of housing dis- discrimination, both as a, as a means of maintaining property values by enforcing racial segregation, but it also makes housing much more scarce. There's that scarcity in the housing. There's only a, so much space for your single family zoning. Um, And I will be linking um, that video in the show notes if you want to check it out. It's a really, really, really cool video. And Johnny does an exceptional job at talking about zoning issues and making it interesting. Um, So, yeah, definitely check that out. But... If, if, this is, if this is the reality, right, how do we get to a place where we can start to divest ourselves from the commodification of housing? Um, and there are like several answers. There are some like big policy moves that could happen. We could increase and fully fund our public housing, our current public housing system. Um, you know, just taking some housing out of the market is better than what we have right now, right? We can just offer that housing at its use value like we used to. Um, At the same time, we could also build a bigger tenants' rights movement. So tenants could become an integral part of the housing conversation. We could also better regulate the housing market and rental markets with rent control, putting other kinds of caps on how much money can actually be created or exchanged in the, you know, the exchange value of a house or of housing. Um, But again, those are kind of big. And on this podcast, we look at the small things, the things that we can really weigh and impact ourselves. Um, and I want to ask you, like, why haven't we made those policy moves yet? Like, why isn't public housing taken seriously by cities and localities? Do you even know, like, the zoning codes of your city? And, and probably the answer is not, right? Because not enough people have realized that those are tools of a commodified housing system. And that commodified housing is a problem. But before I go on, I want to check in really quick with you. What feelings are coming up for you right now? Is there any kind of confusion, defensiveness, hopelessness, some pity, concern? 
Are you angry? And how do those feelings resonate with the beliefs that you have about housing as a tool of wealth generation or even housing as it relates to other human rights issues? Those feelings and beliefs can tell us a lot about where the movement for a better world is right now. And I want to encourage you to tend to those feelings, to be curious about them, ask where they come from, and ask how true are those beliefs to you. And I think most importantly, I want to ask you, how much better would your life be if housing was just there, was just a guarantee? This is why I'm talking about housing on this podcast. It is yet another example of the unlearning that we as a people are invited to do if we want to change the world. And yes, I want to acknowledge I am a tenant organizer. I have my own analysis on these issues that is, you know, very well and probably most likely different from yours. Um, And I want to put some nuance here. I'm not trying to make this into a guilt trip or make this like an imperative um, because I also truly believe that we are all making bargains with capitalism, right? We have all bought into capitalism or other systems of oppression. That's how they work. Um, We are all assholes in that, but we're also doing our very best and trying to survive. Because within that truth, right, we can hold on to and learn from those contradictions, While we might not be God of the universe and we cannot snap our fingers and bring down, you know, capitalism, create the revolution, we can't, you know, abolish the housing market and make housing human right with like the stroke of a pen. We just need to fundamentally think differently about the purpose that housing serves in our world. And that is the first step. And I also want to acknowledge that that might also feel overwhelming and scary and completely out of the question, but we can dream it and therefore it is entirely possible. Last week, Fern and I talked about imagination as an antidote to limiting beliefs and how imagination is really just an important part of working through internal blocks. Because like that dream is how you find your strength, is how you find your agency. When I start to imagine a world where housing is a human right, I also imagine a world where there is accessible public spaces and beautiful infrastructure and where we center our lives around community rather than our private property and our commutes. And bringing that into the world, oh, I like makes me feel so inspired and created, creative. It makes me feel so, so, so inspired. That would be truly incredible. What do you want to do? What are you bringing into this world? I invite you to daydream because it is just as important as drinking water. Um, so yeah, 
that's kind of where I'm going to leave it for you. Threw a lot at you. Um, if you learned something new, please let me know by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Um, you can follow me on the web at coachingforus.com and you can find me on Instagram at coachingforus. And quick plug for the work that I'm doing as a tenant organizer. If you live in Portland or Multnomah County, you can support the ballot campaign that I'm working on. It's called Eviction Representation for All. And it is a ballot campaign that will reduce displacement and harm caused by evictions. Learn more at era, E-R-A, tenants.org. And I'll be around again next Tuesday. I hope you have a good one. was recorded in Portland, Oregon, which rests on the unceded and stolen territory of the Multnomah, Cowlitz, Kalamit, Clackamas, Chinook, Tualatin, and many other tribes. I acknowledge the enduring relationship between the land and its original caretakers since time immemorial. I also acknowledge the system of racial capitalism and the existing unpaid reparations for U.S. slavery all share the responsibility for addressing and undoing the lasting impacts of settler colonialism and racial capitalism.